Thank you, Seth. Week after week, the Lord uses you and your gifts to bless us and prepare us for further worship from the Word. Amen? Aren't you thankful to have Seth with us? Jeremiah 24 is where we're going to be this morning. Let me move this pulpit a bit more. I'm going to be reading the whole chapter. That sounds daunting, but it's only 10 verses, this one. And it says this, After Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had taken into exile from Jerusalem Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, together with the officials of Judah, the craftsmen, the metal workers, and had brought them to Babylon. The Lord showed me this vision. Behold, two baskets of figs placed before the temple of the Lord. One basket had very good figs, like first ripe figs, but the other basket had very bad figs, so bad they could not be eaten. And the Lord said to me, What do you see, Jeremiah? I said, Figs, the good figs, very good, and the bad figs, very bad, so bad that they cannot be eaten. Then the word of the Lord came to me. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Like these good figs, so I will regard as good the exiles from Judah, whom I have sent away from this place to the land of the Chaldeans. I will set my eyes on them for good. I'll bring them back to this land. I will build them up and not tear them down. I will plant them and not pluck them up. I will give them a heart to know that I am the Lord, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God, for they shall return to me with their whole heart. But, thus says the Lord, like the bad figs that are so bad that they cannot be eaten, so I will treat Zedekiah, the king of Judah, his officials, the remnant of Jerusalem who remain in this land, and those who dwell in the land of Egypt, I will make them a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth, to be a reproach, a byword, a taunt, and a curse in all the places where I shall drive them. And I will send sword, famine, and pestilence upon them until they shall be utterly destroyed from the land that I give to them and their fathers. This is the word of God. Thanks for coming, and you can be seated. And will you please bow with me as we ask God to help us. Father, I pray for that help, Lord, that you give to us through faith in your dear Son, Lord. He's the one who gets us into your presence, Lord. That's why I have to come to you in his name, Lord. I'm coming to you in the righteousness of another one your dear son, Jesus Christ, into your holy presence. Now, asking for help, please, Lord, help us to understand this word rightly. Help me to divide it rightly and to present it rightly. And I pray, of course, that you would give us grace to live it rightly and to love it rightly. We pray all this in your son's perfect name. Amen. When I was young, I was so thankful for the fact that my mom was a stay-at-home mom. She was there uh, most of, most all my, if you want to call it childhood. She did get a job, however, as a teacher's aide when I was a teenager, and that's so that her work hours would just be school hours, and so she could still be home with us, and I was so thankful for that. However, that also meant that whenever mom had to go to the mall to go shopping, we, we were with her. When she had to go to the grocery store to go groceries, to get groceries, we were with her. Sometimes that was fun. But sometimes those grocery trips can get a little long, a little boring. It can make a a little guy a little squirrely, a little rambunctious, and rebellious, wanting to do his own thing. 
Well, sometimes that would happen. Believe it or not, I know you don't believe this about your pastor, but sometimes as a child, he acted badly. I know you guys think I came out of the womb, just there was a light upon me. Actually, if you dim the lights now a little bit, you'll see a halo. Just... Well, I was a little bit bad as a child, like most children can be. And so my mom would say that dreaded phrase, when we get home, you're getting a spanking. To which my character, my actions would change dramatically. You know why? Because I was hoping to ward off the spanking by angelic behavior for the next 30 minutes or however longer we were going to be there. And hoping mom would forget. Oh, hoping she would forget. Get home. I'm helping putting away the groceries. Oh, I'm just so helpful at this point. Hoping she would forget. She would say, all right, come back to the bedroom. It's time for your spanking. Oh, no. I was hoping she would relent. I was hoping she might say, you know what? I'm not going to do it after all. I know I said I would, but I'm not going to. But you know what she would sometimes say to me? Well, sweetie, if I told you I was going to give you ice cream or a a candy bar, you would want me to keep my word and do that, right? She was right. She was making the point, I can't keep my word in one area and not keep it in another. You, You want me to keep my word when it means it's for your good, but you don't want me to keep my word when it means it's for something you don't like. And she was right when she had me. And I, so I got the spanking. That was good, though. It was good that she kept her word. See, I knew my parents weren't going to lie to me. I knew they weren't going to bluff me either. Don't, don't bluff your children, parents. Um, I knew that my parents did what they said, and they were going to do what they said. You see, that creates a stable, a dependable, and a reliable relationship with parents that children need. This not only makes home life work well when it comes to raising children, guess what? It also serves us well in the workplace too. Other areas of life are good for us when it comes to people keeping their word. When we know we have a boss who's going to act according to his word and, and treat his employees according to his word, well, things, things function well. Things function smoothly. When you know you can trust your boss, he has your good in mind, and he's going to keep his word, well, there's structure and stability that comes from that, too. There's a dependability that's going to come from your job being there. There's stability when it comes to your pay. Well, guess what? This is also what's so good about following God. We know that we have a God who's always going to be true to what he says as well. We know that we have a God who's always going to be true when it comes to wrath upon the wicked. He will execute judgment both on an individual level in every unbeliever's life, but also on a global level when he comes again on the last day. He's going to be true to that word punish sin wherever it's found. Also, God's going to be true to his word when it comes to keeping promises for those who believe him and trust him when it comes to the forgiveness of sins. And each person who believes that Christ is the substitutional sacrifice for his sin, God will bring each one of those souls as well into glory one day with him in heaven. And on the last day, their bodies shall be raised to be like the likeness of his glorious body, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. 
These things are true too. When God says them, those are true as well. And we want them to be true. We need them to be true. Why? Because that also creates for the Christian stability, security, and hope. That's why I've titled the message this morning, Which Promise Do You Want? Which promise do you want? God's making promises all throughout the book of Jeremiah, and they've really been promises for punishment so far, for retribution so far. But now we see God making a promise to Jeremiah that he'll bring the exiles back. Those promises are true too, and he compares it to two baskets of figs. So Jeremiah, we know in chapters 21 and 22, he had words against these leaders. And in chapter 23, remember he had words against the false prophets? And now God's got a word for him where he divides the people just into two groups, the good and the bad. And what he's going to do with the good and with the bad. So let's get right into it. Look at verse 1 again of chapter 24. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had taken into exile from Jerusalem Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, together with the officials of Judah, the craftsmen, the metal workers, and had brought them to Babylon, just as the Lord said he would do. God's been prophesying this again and again and again through Jeremiah, and now it has happened. This isn't the final one. This is the first one. This is in the year 597 B.C., the final taking away of the people, because it actually happened in three phases. The final taking away and destroying of that land happened in 586. This is the first one. This is when he comes in and gets some of the best people, some of the most useful people for his kingdom. Remember Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego? Remember how they were brought in? And they said, ooh, these guys are handsome, and they can do well, and they're smart, and they can do things. Give them good food. These were some of the first the book of Daniel, that's why they're there. They were brought during this time right here. And so that's what's going on. And God then shows them two baskets of figs placed before the temple of the Lord. Some are very good, some are very bad. But let me explain this to you because you have to put yourself into this for a moment. And you have to put yourself in this scenario. Imagine if a nation mightier than our nation came in and started capturing people by the thousands, overthrew us. You have to know, Jeremiah would have been distressed by this capturing of the king, and others mentioned in this text, he would not have been happy. And I don't mean in any way that he would have been angry with God. He knew this was of God. He'd been prophesying that this, that this was going to happen. So don't mean in any way that he's angry at God. What I mean is that he would have been distressed even though he prophesied this was going to happen. He didn't want this to happen. He was not thinking, good, burn, you horrible people. Get that. No, he was wanting the people to turn. Remember, as a prophet, he sent them these warnings that they would keep coming. But even a pronouncement that judgment is on its way is still a call to repentance. A, a pronouncement of judgment to come is still for these people a call to repentance. Remember Jonah? Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. What did that make happen in the heart of the king that then trickled down into the heart of people but repentance? And with their repentance, 
there was relentance for God. They repented, and God relented. Remember that? They repented at that message. Ezekiel 33 also lays this out for us. Look at this. Ezekiel 33, verses 14 through 16. Amy pointed this out to me, and I'm so glad that she did because it's so applicable because these guys were contemporaries, Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Again, though I say to the wicked, you shall surely die. Yet if he turns from his sin and does what's just and right, if the wicked restores the pledge, gives back what he has taken by robbery and walks in the statutes of life, not doing injustice, he shall surely live. He shall not die. None of his sins that he has committed shall be remembered against him. He has done what is right and just. He shall surely live. So even, he says here, even when I make a pronouncement, you shall surely die. He's saying, if he takes that and changes his ways because he's now believing what I've said, he'll live. Now we know because we have the rest of the Bible, thankfully. If all we had was those three verses from Ezekiel, we, we might think otherwise, but we know from the rest of the Bible that what produces a changed life is a changed heart. God's not saying in any way at all, do good stuff and, I'll, and then I'll forgive your sins because you did good stuff. He's not saying that. And we know he's not saying that. He's saying if you show by your actions that your heart's been changed, then I'll know you've really, truly changed. Because don't tell me you've changed. Don't tell me God's your Lord when you're walking in blatant disobedience to him. Your life is showing so many things to the contrary. Don't tell me, I know God, I'm a Christian, I'm a God follower. No, you're not. And that's how God knew that they truly repented. That's why he could say, I will not remember their sins against them anymore. Because look how they've changed. And so with every pronunciation of coming judgment... Jeremiah wanted these people to repent. It wasn't out for blood. Jeremiah, seeing that the people continued to refuse his words and therefore refuse the word of God, well, he now witnesses these people being ripped out of their land. It would have likely troubled his heart, even though he was called to pronounce its coming. It's like my mom pronounced upon me, you're getting a spanking when you're getting home. She wasn't thinking with excitement about that. Oh, I just can't wait to spank him. Mm, it's going to be so fun. No, she didn't like to do it either, but she knew the fruit from it will be good for him. 2 Kings 24 gives us more detail of exactly what happened. This is why I, this gives us more detail. I want to show you that just the the tectonic plates of this time would have been shaking and would have troubled Jeremiah as well because listen in more detail what was going on. 2 Kings 24, verses 10 through 17. At that time, the servants of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up to Jerusalem, and the city was besieged. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to the city while his servants were besieging it. And Jehoiachin, the king of Judah, gave himself up to the king of Babylon, himself and his mother and servants and his officials and his palace officials. So everybody in charge said, we give up. Even my own mother, we surrender. The king of Babylon 
took him prisoner in the eighth year of his reign and carried off all the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house and cut in pieces all the vessels of gold in the temple of the Lord, which Solomon, king of Israel, had made as the Lord had foretold. So they even go to the temple and they start breaking things apart. I don't think they were saying, let's bash this because we just don't like this place. No, I, I think it was probably just practical. These things are big. Let's break them apart so we can actually carry them away. It may have also been just to show, hey, look, our gods are better than your gods. Let's break things down. But I promise you it was also practical. Verse 14, he carried away all Jerusalem and all the officials and all the mighty men of valor. This is, this is broad language to show how many people they took away because we already got details that they left some people behind. 10,000 captives. All the craftsmen and the smiths, none remained except the poorest people of the land. There we go. And he carried away Jehoiachin to Babylon. The king's mother, the king's wives, his officials, chief men of the land, took them into captivity from Jerusalem to Babylon. And the king of Babylon brought captive to Babylon all the men of valor, 7,000. And the craftsmen, metal workers, 1,000, all of them strong and fit for war. And the king of Babylon made Mataniah... Jehoiachin's uncle, king in his place, and changed his name to Zedekiah. So guys, again, I'm just trying to stress to you how distressing this would have been for a reason. And here in a moment, I'll show you. But this would have been just a huge upheaval of the powers of the land. Neither the king nor the men of valor were able to stand against this might. Nebuchadnezzar's army was like a tsunami breaking upon them. And they couldn't stand, and they knew they should surrender. Took away 10,000 souls were taken away that day, taken into captivity, even the mightiest in the land. We as America, we think, you know what? We don't have to worry about China. We don't have to worry about these other nations. We don't have to worry about Russia because we've got all these missiles and tanks and jets. Our military is formidable. Well, imagine... Your military, your mighty men of valor saying, we give up. Distressing time. Only the poorest of the poor were left behind. There's this great void in the land. Jeremiah would have walked out into the day and just seen so few people. None of the shops working anymore. None of the smiths sharpening anything for you. They're all gone. The best of the best and those who just do daily work, they're gone. Jeremiah would have been a man in need of encouragement. Even though he was to prophesy the coming of this, at this time seeing it, living in it, he would have needed encouragement. Chapter 24 serves as that encouragement for Jeremiah. You probably notice that the mood, like the, the aroma of this chapter was different from what we've seen before. Did you notice that? The first part of this chapter... God's pronouncing all these good things he's going to do to the exiles. We're not used to that in this book. We're not used to that. This book was sad, really. It's sad because he says, you're doing this. It's bad. You're going after idols, and God's going to fulfill his word that he spoke against you. This is going to happen. And the people say, shut up. Go away. We don't like you. We're going to keep doing what we're going to keep doing. And the prophets say, don't listen to that kook. Peace. Peace. Everything's fine. And then there's a plot against Jeremiah to kill him by the people of his own town. 
Nobody likes them. And God says, go back. Keep telling them how bad they are. And keep telling them to turn because this, this punishment's coming. It's just sad. And now he sees it. And he needs encouragement. And he gets it. Because the vision and the description of it, both from God, would have been this healing salve for his heart. He needed to hear this. And what did he hear from God in verses 4 through 7? Did you see that? Let's look at verses 4 through 7 of our text, Jeremiah 24. Then the word of the Lord came to me after this vision. This comes to him. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, like these good figs, so I will regard as good the exiles from Judah, whom I have sent away from this place to the land of the Chaldeans. I'll set my eyes on them for good. I want you to notice now all these statements that God's going to do. First of all, I will set my eyes on them for good. I will bring them back to this land. I will build them up, not tear them down. I will plant them, not pluck them up. I will give them a heart to know that I am the Lord. God's going to do it. God's going to do it. God's going to do it. You can really break it down to three things that he focuses on here. God shows his concern for their return. He shows his concern for their well-being. And he shows concern for their hearts. Listen to what Charles Spurgeon says about this. The main stress of the promise lies, however, in this. I will give them a heart to know me. That is not merely know that I am, that I am Jehovah, but to have a personal knowledge of myself. It's not enough to know that our Creator is the Jehovah of the Bible and that He is perfect in character and glorious beyond thought, but to know God. We must have perceived Him. We must have spoken to Him. We must have made at peace with We must have been made at peace with Him. We must have lifted up our heart to Him and received communications from him. If you know the Lord, he has manifested himself unto you as he does not unto the world. He must have made himself known unto you by the mysteries, the mysterious influence of the Spirit. And because of this, you know him. It's God that makes you know him. And that's what God's saying. That's, that's a thrust here. That's the most beautiful part. Of all this. Not that they're just going to come back to the land. Okay, awesome. But it's just real estate. Not that, you know, I'm going to keep you guys safe while you're in the other land. Okay, great. But, you know, my body is going to die one day. But I'm glad for you keeping me safe. The main thing, the best part, is that he says, I will give them a heart to know that I am the Lord. Because that's the problem. The heart of your problem it's the problem of your heart. You've heard that before. And that was their problem. Their hearts weren't truly fully devoted to the Lord. And that's, that's where all of our problems stem from. When our heart starts to turn away from the Lord, when our heart starts to run after things of the world more than the things of God, that's when we see trouble and disaster and sin. And that's what they needed, a new heart. That's where the great promise of the new heart is going to come. This great promise of the new covenant is going to come as well. But Jeremiah could take heart in this. Speaking of heart, he could take heart in this. Why? Well, listen to this statement. Just as Jeremiah was given prophecies where God pronounced retribution, so now God is promising restoration. 
God keeps his promises both in the pronouncement of retribution and the promise of restoration. See, he'd seen God keep his promises for punishment. God said he was going to do it, and then now he got to watch it all take place. And so now when God says, but I'm going to bring them back. I'm going to care for them. Like those beautiful figs that are so wonderful, sat before the temple as if they're an offering in that vision that I showed you. These are the ones I'm talking about. These are the good ones that are very good, and I'm going to keep them. I'm going to keep them and restore them and give them a new heart and bring them back. Oh, Jeremiah needed that. Jeremiah could take heart in that. Aren't you thankful also that when you're walking closely with God, you know this. Listen, you know this. Every single one of you in here who's a Christian, you've been through something hard. You've been through something bad. Maybe you've been through multiple hard, bad things. You know, if your memory's good enough, that within that, God's helped you. God's helped you. In the darkest, hardest part even maybe, you thought, yeah, okay, that's good. That's good. Sometimes it only lasts for a little while. I get it because we're so short-sighted and sometimes we still just go right back to our worrying and fretting. But you remember when God said, here's hope. Here's hope. Here's a blessing. Don't forget this. He's with us. And God's showing Jeremiah and I'm going to be with these people. How encouraging. God's not done with them. God's discipline is always designed to bring his people back to him, never to permanently cast them off. Key part of that, though, was his people, whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. Listen to what Warren Wiersbe said. In times of national catastrophe, no matter how discouraging the circumstances may be, God doesn't desert his faithful remnant. Rebels are scattered and destroyed, but true believers find God faithful to meet their needs and accomplish his great plans. The people who returned to the land after the captivity were by no means perfect, but they had learned to trust the true and living God and not to worship idols. Listen to this. If the captivity did nothing else, it purged the Jewish people of idolatry. You know, after they return, we don't read much about them struggling with idolatry like they did before. It purged them of that. It purged them of that. And God's discipline purges us as well. Now, however, let's talk about those who are are not truly his. Because the vision just didn't give a vision of beautiful figs, did it? It gave the other vision of the unedible figs. Can we put that title image back up again? I just want to show, because... Not all of us are familiar with figs. I get it. But if you've ever had them and they're nice and plump, we usually eat them dried a little bit, right? But if you've ever had them fresh, boy, they're delicious. You just can't stop eating them. But the bad ones, look at the other basket. They're unedible. You don't want them. They're just to be thrown out. You would not eat them. They would be gross. They would be disgusting. They're good for nothing at this point. So what can these expect? Well, look at verses 8 through 10. 
But thus says the Lord, like the bad figs that are so bad they cannot be eaten, so I will treat Zedekiah, king of Judah, his officials, the remnant of Jerusalem who remain in this land, and those who dwell in the land of Egypt. I'll make them a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth, to be a reproach, a byword, a taunt, and a curse in all the places where they shall live. I will, sh- I will send sword, famine, pestilence upon them, so they are utterly destroyed from the land I gave to them and their fathers. Remember what God said to the first Jew, the first Jew, Abraham. He said, I'm going to bless you, and you're going to be a blessing. See, the people of Israel were supposed to be a blessing to the world. And ultimately they were through the Messiah, the greatest descendant of Abraham. But the people in general were just supposed to be a blessing. Back to Jonah again. See, he had totally distorted in his mind the role for the Jews. They were supposed to be a blessing. They were supposed to go out and call others to repentance. They were supposed to extend God's blessings through the great covenants of God. And Jonah had gotten to the point where he said, no, (laughs) heck no. I only want wrath for the wicked. Burn them up. And if you don't, I'm going to have a pity party. Jonah should have gotten more spankings. He should have grown up in my house. He should have gotten more spankings. Because he's acting like a little baby. Because he forgot he was supposed to be a blessing. But look what God says about these people. Are they going to be a blessing? Are they going to be that blessing that they're supposed to be? No. Verse Verse 9 says, I'll make them a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth. To be a reproach, a byword, a taunt, or a curse. See, the opposite happens. When we go against God and his ways, we distort what we were made for. That's exactly what happened to the people of God. Have they gone against God's ways? Is your life not feeling like it's snapped in right to God's design? It's not likely God's fault. He's always calling us. He's calling us to repentance. He's even calling us to repentance through this message right now. Ready to receive us. Ready to restore us. Always. Because he can. Because of Jesus Christ. This verse 9 also brings to mind something from Deuteronomy 28. Deuteronomy 28, 37. See, our verse says this. You'll be a reproach, a byword, a taunt, and a curse in all the places that I send you. Listen to Deuteronomy 28, 37. This is talking about when the people of Israel sin. He says, if you sin, this is, gonna, this is what you can expect. Deuteronomy 28, 37. You shall become a horror, a proverb, a byword among all the peoples where the Lord will lead you. So similar in language to what was said here through the prophet Jeremiah. He's hearkening back to the law. And this was law that was given hundreds of years before they even entered into this land. Hundreds of years before any of this even took place. The law already said this was going to happen. And it came to pass because God said in that same chapter, because this is a very famous chapter, Deuteronomy 28. It's one of the most famous chapters in that book. Because it tells about the blessings for obedience, but the curses for disobedience. That's what the whole chapter is about. And it came to pass as well. Because God keeps his promises both in the pronouncement of retribution and in the promises of restoration. I don't have a slide for this, but turn to Jeremiah 21.9. Jeremiah 21.9. 
because there's something that was already said by Jeremiah. Actually, we're going to look at verses 8 and 9. Jeremiah 21, 8 and 9. Which also shows us why what's happening now is happening. And to this people you shall say, thus says the Lord, Behold, I set before you the way of life and the way of death. He who stays in the city shall die by the sword, by famine, by pestilence. That's exactly what we were just talking about. But he who goes out and surrenders to the Chaldeans, who are besieging you, shall live and shall have his life as a prize of war. See, this would have been something that now had to be obeyed by the people once the Chaldeans showed up. By the way, the Chaldeans is just another phrase for the Babylonians because Chaldea was a a bigger place and the Babylonians lived in it. So he says, if you go out and surrender, you're going to have your life. If you don't, you're going to die by sword, by famine, by pestilence. And so remember when we were reading in that portion of 2 Kings, this is another reason why I read it to you. It says they surrendered and they lived. See, at this point, they're having to believe God at his word. They're having to believe Jeremiah at his word. He said, if we surrender, we live. And if we don't, we die. Well, what's the wording of our second Kings chapter that we read? They surrendered. I'm wondering, I just wonder. It doesn't say, we don't know, but I just wonder if he remembered back to Jeremiah's word, God's word to him and said, we need to believe God at his word. I think maybe they did. I think maybe they did because this is why they're now categorized in the good, the ones that God's going to now bless. Why? Because they believed God at his word. They believed he's faithful to do what he's going, what he says he's going to do. Remember earlier, I said that if we believe God's promises, it creates three things. Believing God's promises, church, creates three things. Stability, security, and hope. We have that slide. I made a slide for you guys so that you don't forget. Believing God's promises creates stability, security, and hope. They would have had to have believed this. The exiles going in, and Jeremiah as well. You you long for stability in life. You long for security in life. And you need hope to survive life. And believing God's promises are the key. It's the key to all that. Think about when you get stressed and anxious. You feel unstable. Something about life is not stable. Something about life is not firm and sure. All the what-ifs start to pop in your head. Why? You don't feel stable. Something feels unstable about life, your circumstances. Security. This is really big for you women as well. You really yearn and long for security. This helps you function, and, and you know that. I think that's why God made us husbands such... Uh, burned it into our DNA to want to be the provider in the family. Because when we're doing our part, it makes you feel stable and secure in, in, in your part. And then hope, we all need hope. It's when we're hopeless that we start to self-destruct. God keeps his promises. 
both in the pronouncement of retribution and the promise of restoration. And we need these promises. And you need to know that he's going to do both. We like the promises just of the good stuff. Like when my mom says, if I told you I was going to give you ice cream, you'd want that, right? God also keeps his promises, though, on the other side. We can expect discipline. If we're Christians, we can expect discipline when we go against his ways. If you're not saved at all, you can expect him to keep his word and being a righteous judge who's going to punish sin wherever it's found. But there's hope for you, even if you're not saved. Well, I would say this, especially if you're not saved, there's hope for you because he's extending forgiveness and a home in heaven. Look at John 14. This is why this is so good for us. I'm almost done. I'm going to end with this. Jesus says this in John 14, a wonderful chapter. Let not your heart be troubled. Hmm. Seems like maybe their hearts were troubled. Seems like maybe there was some instability, insecurity perhaps, lack of hope. So what does Jesus now say next? Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. Look at this. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare, to prepare a place for you? Jesus is bringing back what's so back to what he says. Did you hear that? If it were not so, wouldn't have told you this truth that I told you. I'm only going to tell you the truth. And I'm going to do what I say. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself. And where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. And of course, he's referring to himself there. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. That's what he says later. He gives them a promise. I'm going to come back and receive you to myself. And you're going to have a home in heaven with me. Why? Because I'm the way there. And you're in me. That's why he says, you know the way. That promise is for us. If we're in Christ, we know that our future is stable and secure, and we have a sure hope of that. Why? Because of what God promised. Amen? Land hard. Lean hard. Fall hard on the promises of God, and they will always hold you up. Always. All the way to the end. Father, we thank you for this word. It's encouraging to us, as I'm sure it was encouraging to Jeremiah as well, that you're going to bring your people back, you told him, and you did. We live on this side of it now. You did it. You did it. So what you promised, you fulfilled. And what you have promised concerning the future, concerning our future, those of us who are in you, you will also fulfill. And we're so thankful to have your promises someone who never lies, someone who is sure, and he's going to do what he says he's going to do. Help us lean hard on that, Lord. In Jesus' name, 